Well, hello, everybody. Great to be with you. My name is Alex Grom, and I'm the Torrance Campus Pastor here at Journey of Faith. Hope you're having a good Sunday so far. Great to see everybody in person at Manhattan Beach. Thank you so much for coming to church. Uh, Of course, this is the time in our service, though, where we connect live over with our Torrance campus. So I'm so glad that you're connected with us this morning. Uh, Plus, if any of you are watching online, maybe that's uh, today for us, Sunday, or sometime during the week, thanks for being part of this. I just love that we can be in so many places uh, as one church. Today we are continuing our series uh, called Friendship Essentials. We've been looking at ways that we can become better friends and uh, share friendship with those around us. Now, this all stems from some recent studies that have shown that we as a culture are in the midst of an epidemic of poor friendships. People report more and more every day that they either have no friends that they can identify or that the friends that they do have they're not satisfied with. There's tension there. Uh, Now, that's hard and that's a challenging place to be, but we're looking for inspiration from how Jesus handled his friendships. Uh, We see unbelievably good examples of how he maintained and found great friendships, and we're going to be inspired by that in this series. So we've been walking through five different ways we're going to do that. We're going to get to that in just a second. Uh, But I've been thinking about my own friendships in life, and it made me think this week about one of my earliest good friendships I I can remember. And actually, when I was a kid, uh, I still do, but I have a brother who's one year older than me. And when we were kids, we kind of grew up as the same person. Uh, They were close enough that everybody just kind of treated us as a pair. And so most of his friends were also my friends. And we had a friend named Ronnie. Ronnie was one of my best friends in second grade uh, for two reasons. First of all, Ronnie had a great collection of video games, which was my number one standard in a friend at the time. Not far off nowadays. Uh, But then, well, that's the only reason. That's actually the only reason I was friends with him. There's no second thing. Um, But one interesting thing about Ronnie, a second interesting thing about him, is that my dad didn't believe in Ronnie. And I literally mean he did not believe that Ronnie existed. Uh, For the run of time that I was friends with Ronnie, it was this odd situation where every time Ronnie would come over, my dad would be at work or off on a work trip or something. And then by the time my dad came home, Ronnie, of course, would have gone home to be with his family. My dad never saw him. He would literally tell us often, I don't believe Ronnie exists. I think you're making him up. Uh, In fact, one day... I was at home, it was a Saturday, and me and my, my dad was supposed to drive me and my brother to Ronnie's house to play, but that morning Ronnie's mom called my mom and said that Ronnie was sick. We couldn't go. And my dad said, of course you can't go. You can't go play at someone's house that doesn't exist. Uh, My dad didn't do a lot of those like long-term running gags, and so it was pretty impressive that he kept it up. But now as an adult, that was so influential in my life. I don't know if you feel this way, but I have kind of this hazy fog around some of my early childhood memories, and one of the ways that has shown itself is I have caught myself thinking, was Ronnie real? Did he exist? (laughs) Maybe Ronnie's watching this online. Ronnie, I'd love to hear from you if you're a real person. Now, this series is not supposed to help you answer that question. Did your friends, were they imaginary friends? Hopefully you're processing that in some other way. But there is a similar question that this entire series is asking us to consider, which is, do I have real friends? Now, not real or imaginary, but true friends. 
What is real friendship? What does real connection in a friendship relationship, not just family, friendships are chosen. We choose to be connected in friendships. Do I have those? How are they going? Am I suffering from what a lot of culture is suffering from, which is a decline in the quality of my friendships? It's into that question that we've been offering what we've been calling friendship essentials. Five elements that we could practice, that we could add to our experience of relationships that would greatly help our experience. Because, listen, friendships often, left to their own devices, spin out. They fizzle. They fail. And sometimes that's because something happened. There was a moment of anger or, or a fight or a disagreement. That's not very common, though. Usually, friendships just kind of grow a disconnect, a distance. A tension comes out, and people slowly move farther away. They might not, you might not even be able to recognize why you have felt that disconnect from another person. But in the end, a lot of friendships we really just wouldn't want to bother with. We don't want to continue them, but it's really almost too much trouble to end them. They're just going to languish that way. That is, that's a sad place that all of us have been in, made even more sad by the idea that, that it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, we have Jesus as an example, not just living out his own friendships, but then giving us insight into how we could better start and maintain and thrive in the friendships we do have. So let me, let me show you, in week one of this series, we talked about this. We need to add intentionality. Like I said, friendships are chosen. From the very beginning, we need to bring an intention, and we see this in the way Jesus handled the way he did his life and ministry and relationships. Then second week, we said that it takes mutual growth, a real desire to begin one place, but then together grow to be even better people. If you don't have that yet, it's time to add that to your friendships. Last week, Pastor Jill brought emotional connection into the picture. We actually have to be vulnerable and go beyond surface level to really expressing ourselves emotional. For some of you, that was the most terrifying one because you're not used to expressing your emotions vulnerably, surely not with another person. It's time to move into that. Now, next week, as a preview, we're going to end this series by talking about alignment. Are you headed in the same direction with your friends? That is a massively helpful thing to be in alignment. But we're going we're gonna to finish with one last one that comes from the idea that even if you're doing all four of the previous ones that I just mentioned and your, your relationships are good, you will face tension. It is absolutely in- inevitable. You cannot avoid in normal human relationships some sort of buildup of tension. Now, like I said, that's not what we want. That's something that we want to avoid, but really It's a normal, natural outcome of people relating to each other. Now, because that is an absolutely normal part of friendships, we need to add at least one more major skill to our friendship essentials to overcome it, and that is this, forgiveness. Jesus is the ultimate example, the king of using forgiveness, not just in a cosmic sense for everybody, but with specifically in his friendships, Jesus brought an element of forgiveness that was powerfully effective in maintaining relationships despite the growth of inevitable tension. He was able to break through, to overcome the barrier of tension in his friendship using forgiveness, and that's what he invites into us into. In fact, here is the, the main point for today. God is inviting us to experience the power of forgiveness in our friendships. 
Your friendships need power as their backing, and that can come from the incredible witness that we have of Jesus letting this influence the way he reacted to other people. The story from the Bible we're going to look at today, because there are many of Jesus showing forgiveness, comes from the very end of Jesus' life. If you were with us two weeks ago, uh, you heard Jason describe the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus was born, and for the first 30 years, he was preparing. And then when he was 30, he began what turned out to be a three-year run of ministry. During that time, he traveled and he taught and he shared the good news that Jesus wanted to forgive people. In that three years, he started gathering his group of friends. His closest friends were his disciples, 12 people that spent a lot of time relating to him and being with him. Two years into his three years of ministry, he started sharing with his disciples the grand plan. He wasn't just a nice person. He wasn't just a teacher of truth. His goal on earth was to lay down his life, to let himself be sacrificed for the sake of the rest of humanity. That he knew the plan was that he was going to get falsely arrested and then murdered by being crucified on a cross. He he told his disciples that, by the way, that wasn't the end of the plan. The end of the plan is that he was going to conquer death and rise again. But this idea that he, as a great teacher, was going to sacrifice himself and take the penalty for all of the things that you and I do wrong, if we would only believe in him, he would take that punishment we deserve. His disciples were not big fans of that part of the plan. (laughs) But Jesus made telling telling them about this a friendship issue. In fact, here's a verse from the book of John, uh, John, kind of in the middle of the book, and Jesus is talking, and he's talking to his disciples. He says, you're my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. He's saying, listen, this plan I'm revealing to you that I'm going to die on a cross, I know it's not pleasant, but this is not only true, I care about you so much. If you're my friend, you would believe me. That's what he's saying. He's saying friendship requires that you trust me. So the story we're going to read actually takes place close after this. He does, the plan happens. He is falsely arrested for crimes he didn't commit. He is crucified. He dies on a cross. His disciples witness all of this. And then, just as the plan was meant to, three days later, he beats death. He returns to life. God brings him back. He conquers the greatest enemy, death itself. And he appears to his disciples disciples in amazing ways they're blown away there's this one day they're in a room all the doors are closed and all of a sudden Jesus is there with them in the flesh they can't believe it they're they are they this is the king of kings he has arrived back to life just as he said that's where our story picks up look what happens in John 20 one of the 12 disciples though Thomas nicknamed the twin was not with the others when Jesus came so the others told him hey we've seen the Lord But Thomas replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. This is a grotesque joke that Thomas is making. He's describing the physical anguish, that torture that Jesus went through as he was crucified. He's talking about the nail wounds that Jesus was put up in. They they poked him with a spear and Jesus bled out. He's talking about that spear wound. It's kind of this yucky, off-color joke that Thomas is making, basically to say, I don't believe you guys. 
Now, this is such an odd moment for poor Thomas here because what he is saying is, I don't trust you. I don't trust that what Jesus said is true. He was our friend. I don't trust that he's coming back. I know you guys said you saw him. I don't trust you. It's a very unique situation. But what Thomas is doing is introducing a tension into his friendships. He, now, for them, it's the tension of mistrust. It is a tension that begins to build the barrier between them. Now, I bet you haven't been in a situation where one of your friends said they're coming back to life, but I bet you've been in countless situations where someone introduces a barrier of tension that you will later have to address. I can tell you in my, in my life I have experienced, very, not in the situation, but that I have been the cause of the tension of mistrust in several friendships. Let me just give you an example. Um, a good friend of mine from a previous church that I worked in. I, I worked in a church where I was part of the student ministry team, and we had maybe eight or ten staff on that team, and I was in charge of high school ministry, ministry to high schoolers. And my co-worker, most directly, was a woman with a unique name. Her name is Gary, uh, with an I at the end. And Gary was in charge of junior hire. So we worked in partnership and grew in a friendship. It was a wonderful work connection. We were very different, Gary and I. I am one of those people who I love strategy and bold vision and just put, let's go for something new. Let's see what God has for us. Let's press into something incredible, do a great new project. Gary is a uh, a, a strategist also, but she's a thinker. She is a planner. She loves spreadsheets. Do you have people like this at your work that love spreadsheets? You got to meet Gary. They got to meet Gary if, they, if they're that kind of person because she was incredible at spreadsheets. In fact, one day she walked into a meeting with our ministry staff, again, about 10 of us, and she brought her ministry plan on a spreadsheet. But it wasn't like on a normal human-style letter-sized piece of paper. It wasn't even on, have you seen like the, the stretchy one, the landscape one, where it's a little bit bigger? Is that what they're called? It wasn't even that. This was a piece of paper called A3. It's ledger paper. I am not kidding. You hold it like this, like an old-timey newspaper. And she handed these printouts out to everybody in the room. We're all holding these things, trying to make room around this work desk we had. I don't know where she got the paper, I didn't know our church had printers capable of printing on this size. It was a miracle. But on the paper was the most dense spreadsheet I had ever laid eyes upon. So much ink was on the paper, it like sagged under the weight of the wet ink. It was unbelievable. It was both the largest spreadsheet and the smallest font I had ever seen all in one piece of paper. At the meeting, I made a joke about it. Everybody laughed. It was a cute moment. What I didn't know is that that moment where I had carelessly joked about something that defined the kind of person Gary was, was kind of the last straw for her in a building tension in our friendship. That she had felt like I hadn't been treating her with respect prior to that, and this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Gary, for the next couple weeks and months, just started treating me with a little more distance, became a little more cold, pulled back from our partnership. And I am a reasonably perceptive person in relationships, and I could tell that that was happening, and I responded in kind. I was 
feeling gross about how our connection and co-working was going. I took a couple step backs. In fact, if there was any apparent mistrust, I, had, I only added to it in those following weeks and months. It wasn't intentional. It was just our relationship, our friendship, a barrier was built that I had a huge part in building. Have you been there? Where it's not like you did something to stick it to them, but you have a relationship, it's a friend, it's a family member, where you're like, I just don't like to deal with it. We have been there. Now, I'm going to put that story on pause for a second because it is that same type of tension that Jesus shows up again in the Bible. Uh, Remember, Thomas wasn't there the first time, but we're going to pick it up a couple days later, and we're going to see what happens to Thomas. By by the way, in the next next slide, can we show them the next slide? This is John 20. I'm sorry, I messed up this story. The story all happens in John 20 if you're looking it up. Here's what happens. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. This is the moment of climax in the tension that they felt. Jesus, I mean, remember the guy was just like, oh, I'll put my hands in his side where all the blood was. Oh, I really believe you guys. Jesus is there, face to face. Now, it's time to fight it out. Jesus had every right. Thomas had introduced a barrier. Jesus could have been upset with him. He had every right to tell Thomas off. Why didn't you believe me? I'm your, supposed to be your friend. He had every right to diminish Thomas, but Jesus makes a different choice. Instead, Jesus chooses to say this, peace be with you, he says. Jesus, this is not a natural inclination. This is a chosen forgiveness reaction to say, Thomas, I'm going to let it go. I'm here. You're here. Let's look over, let's destroy, let's go through that barrier and reconnect. In fact, Jesus really takes it further. He says this. He says, he said to Thomas, hey, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound by my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. He really, Jesus is like, listen, Thomas, that's gross, but if that's what you need to do, I'm up for it. He plays off the same morbid joke that Thomas uses. This has an unbelievably strong effect on Thomas. Here's what he says. He says, my Lord and my God. He, he, he is all in. He is basically in this statement saying, I believe. And almost, I'm, I am so sorry for not believing. The, the forgiveness is so effective here. They reconnect in almost an instant way. Let me go back to that story with Gary It was Gary who, after several months of that weird tension, went against every inclination she had and called a meeting between me and her to sit down where she could tell me what what she was perceiving, where she gave me time to share how I was feeling, and she reached inside to the power that Jesus had given her and offered me forgiveness. And the, that instantly inspired that boundary-breaking forgiveness in me, and it was a wonderful time of reconnection. I am so grateful for people who are brave like my friend Gary was. By the way, she's doing great, still on a leadership team now leading the biggest church in Minnesota. She kicks butt in leadership. I'm so proud of, of knowing her and her leadership. Um, how did they do it? How did Jesus do this? 
How did Gary manage this bit of forgiveness? For the time we have left, I want to take you through three steps that all of us can take to receive the inspiration, the example that these people, especially Jesus, sets for us and move closer to being people of forgiveness. So let me show you the first one. First thing we can do is we can marvel at the supernatural effort that Jesus put into forgiveness and reconciliation. It is a supernatural effort that Jesus accomplished by forgiving you. Let me say it even more clearly. You are not an easy person to forgive. None of us are. We work hard to do the wrong thing by God often. Every time I pull the reins from him, wanting to control my life, instead of going in his direction, I lay another foundation of barrier. Every time I act in an attitude or an action that goes against his will, I'm sharp with my kids, I, I, I do whatever, I, I, I make sure that I'm laying brick by brick that barrier between me and God. Every time I rely on oh, my, my salary, my possessions, instead of recognizing that God is the giver of any gift that I have, I, I make sure that it is sure-footed in the barrier that I'm building. And yet, Jesus loves to forgive me. He loves to wash that barrier away, knock it down, and continue to be my God. In fact, there's a very famous verse. I love sharing it with you. Again, from John 15 this time. Jesus says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. I am amazed that this verse isn't Jesus saying, there is no greater annoyance that I have than having to forgive you, slubs. Instead, he's saying, I love to forgive you. I love, he loves to lay down his life. He shows us the greatest of all loves by putting himself lower so he could raise us back up to relationship with God. That is amazing. We need to spend time recognizing, chewing on, emoting over the great, incredible love and forgiveness of Jesus. Here's the action step that goes with this. Will you take 30 minutes to review the ways that God has forgiven you. This might be uncomfortable to look back in your life and say, here again, Lord, I'm bringing up what I've done wrong. Maybe you need to match that immediately by vocalizing the forgiveness. For me, it would be like, Lord, I know that I've treated people poorly, but I also know that you forgive me. Thank you for that. God, I know that sometimes I, I, I want something different than you want and I rebel against you, but Lord, you forgive me. Thank you for that. Be my God of repair and forgiveness. Those moments can help emphasize in your spirit that you are forgiven, maybe in ways you've never put out through your own voice before. Practice that this week. Take 30 minutes to remember the forgiveness that God has showed you. Second thing is this, second step. We need to weigh the fear of asking for forgiveness against the freedom that forgiveness brings. This is a choice we have to make. You have a tension between you and a family member or a friend or a coworker. I get it. Addressing that is scary. We have a fear of that on one side. The other option is to face into it and to experience the freedom that exists if you tear that barrier down. Both of those options, by the way, require the scariness of looking at the barrier. That's unavoidable. But one of them keeps you stuck where you are forever, grows bitterness and resentment. The other one brings freedom and life. That's what you need. 
If it's going to be scary anyway, let's let it result in the life that Jesus has for us. In fact, some of you are ready. You know what you've done. You know you need to ask for forgiveness. And you're like, where do I even start? What do I say? I've got some great news for you. There are millions of wonderful articles online nowadays about how to make an apology. I'm literally encouraging you to go, go, go to Google and say, how do I say I am sorry for something? There is great advice because our culture knows we need it. In fact, I am reading a book lately, here's what, it's, here's what it looks like, called Sorry, Sorry, Sorry. <laughs> I love this title. Uh, it's by these two people, Marjorie Engel and Susan McCarthy. If, if you're a book reader, will you, will you grab this one and chew on it with me? It's not from a Christian perspective, but it is steeped in great advice about how to make the best possible apology, show your repentance, and ask for forgiveness. I have been, I have been really loving investigating this book. It's a great resource and just published maybe two months ago. Here it is. I think some of us need this action step that I'm about to show you. It's not going to surprise you, but you need the bluntness of it. Here is the action step. Ask for forgiveness. Do it. Some of you know that you, even in your mind this entire time, God has been showing you the person that you have wronged and you need to ask for forgiveness. You're that person who's like, you're out on the dock, you've got your swimsuit on, you're holding your nose, but you're not sure if you're ready to take the plunge. You're not sure if it's going to be too cold in that lake. And I am the friend who comes along and is just like, boop, splash. Just ask for forgiveness. By the way, every expert in the world will tell you that even if that person is not ready to forgive you, and that happens, your preparation in order to be brave enough to ask is life-giving, life-changing, and worth every moment. It shows a respect for that person that you give them the time if they're not ready and understand that. But this act of asking for forgiveness is a key to unlocking the freedom that you need. Hey, by the way, let me say too, if you need to ask for forgiveness from Jesus, from God, he is always ready. He never says, "Ah, I need some time. God wants to forgive you. He loves to forgive you. We read about that. Please, please, please don't delay. Receive his forgiveness today. That will give you the power you need to ask for it from someone else. Last thing here, last step we all need to take is this. We need to start a practice of forgiveness. I picked that word practice very intentionally for two reasons. First, it takes practice and it's scary, but you get better at it. I have become better at asking for forgiveness, recognizing when I need to and then actually doing the ask. I can tell you that for as boneheaded as I am now, I was way worse in the past. Some of my coworkers now are like, really? Yep. This is the good me. <laughs> this is the now what I'm saying is build the muscle. Practice. I understand it's scary at the beginning. It stays scary, but not as much. God wants to bring us into a practice of this. That's the second reason I'm not encouraging you just to do this once. I'm encouraging you to create a practice of forgiveness asking in your life that would last you a lifetime. You would be a different person, a person of forgiveness. That it wouldn't be a question if you're holding grudges anymore, because you would be a person where forgiveness is a natural technique that you use and essential to how you live your life. That's where God wants us to help us grow into. 
In fact, we've been looking in this series at a different part of the Bible in the Old Testament called Proverbs, full of ancient wisdom. Jesus himself, as, as a child, grew up studying from this book of the Bible. It informed his understanding of God's truth when it comes to forgiveness. Here's just one of the Proverbs. It says, love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. This statement, dwelling on it, we, if we're good at anything, we're great at dwelling on someone else's wrong something they have done to us. In fact, we were talking about it this week, and it's when someone says something sharp and hurtful to me, they don't just hurt me once, do they? Because I dwell on it. And so what happens is even if they just did it once, I repeat that hurt in my mind over and over and over, and I create a situation where they didn't just hurt me once, they've hurt me millions of times because I am dwelling on it. That's not fair. They didn't really. But we have a pattern of associating a person, even that we might love, with a hurt so deeply. How could they possibly claw their way out of hurting me that badly from some errant thing they said once? We need to forgive. We need to be people who stop dwelling and release others. In fact, that's the action step for this final one. We need to bring freedom to a friend by forgiving a significant wrong. You need to let it go. For some of you, you need to call someone this afternoon and release them from that grudge you've been holding. They might not even know it, but they can identify that you've been cold towards them. It's time for you to do the work through Jesus to say, I forgive you and I want to be reconnected. In just a second, we're going to close by remembering the connection that we can have with God himself. We're going to celebrate communion. Uh, We're going to focus on our eternal father who loves to forgive through his son, Jesus. Um, You'll see the bands actually at both campuses loading behind me. That's what they're doing. But as they're loading and before we take communion, let me just give you one tiny extra bonus uh, challenge. And this is only going to be specific to some of you because it's, it's been personal to me over the past couple of years, and it's for parents. Here's what, here's what this final challenge is. Don't miss the chance to practice forgiveness with your kids. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this. I'm not saying encourage your kids to ask you for forgiveness. That's good. But what I'm actually challenging you to do is you practice apologizing to them and asking for their forgiveness when you've wronged them. This has been a staple, a decision that we made in our family uh, many years ago. Our practice is not perfect in this, but we have a pattern of when we've recognized that we've wronged our kids. We don't wait for them to come to us. We go to them. We sit on their bed in their bedroom, and we say, I did this wrong. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And we have to leave room for them not to be ready to forgive us. Some of us as parents, we think we have a, like a limited amount of credibility and authority that we have got to protect this image that we somehow are perfect people and if our kids only knew what screw-ups we were, they, when we would lose it, we'd just be gone. That is garbage parenting. Instead, You need to empower your kids by showing them the strength that comes from Jesus-style humility, where you would say, Jesus didn't have to do this, we do. We would say, 
I need your forgiveness. That rule, I pushed it too far. That tone I used with you, that, that thing I didn't or did allow you to do was the wrong move. I would love your forgiveness. Let them see you as a person on a journey of faith, and they will love you more, and you will be more like the follower of Jesus he created you to be. Hey, now I'm going to pray in just a second, and uh, then I'm going to release over to Rachel, who's going to lead communion over at the Torrance campus. But now, will you pray for me, and then we'll go to that section here. Dear Jesus, thank you for being such a clear example with your friends, with Thomas. You were so gracious, so good to him. Lord God, inspire us to do the same. Inspire us to love those around us enough that we would lay ourselves down and allow forgiveness to break down these barriers. Show us, Lord God, even if it's this afternoon we need to make that connection, that phone call, or give us other opportunity, Lord Jesus, to take this step forward to honor you to be like you. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. We pray in your name. Amen.